It's not that I'm opposed to do it. I want to do it, but I wasn't planning in the least of doing it during a sermon time. And this morning and next Sunday, Jason and I will be in the pulpit giving ourselves a break from Keith, uh, giving Keith a break. (laughs) Didn't say it right. And so I talked to Jason. I said, you know, about a week or so ago, whenever it was, and I said, what do you have in mind? Because it would be wonderful if with these two sermons we could kind of connect and make a very many series, as you know, two Sundays for us as a series is very many. And so he tells me, I'm not sure, I don't know, what do you think? I said, well, I have some thoughts, but not sure about that. So we didn't connect at all as far as I'll talk about this and then you talk about that, number one and number two. So I felt the Lord begin to give me a direction here, which typical of me, I argued about it, but I, I feel that, no, this is what I want you to do. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. This is probably what I want. No, okay, so we're doing it. And then I talked to Jason. When was that? Last week? I said, what are you doing? And so next week, it's the same thing. Can I, can I tell on you? Is it okay? Next week, he's going to be talking about Psalm number 121. I said, really? I said, because Sunday morning, which is this morning, I'm going to be just kind of doing an overview of the Psalms. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it's always, I think, an encouraging message that the church knows that the Holy Spirit is the one who decides, directs, and governs what happens in this pulpit. It's not what a bunch of men just want to talk about. It's what we receive from God himself and that we deliver to you. So this morning we're going to talk about the book of Psalms in a very general way. And so if you would, just be opening your Bible to the book of Psalms. And actually the first one we're going to mention in any detail will be Psalm 23. So if you would like to turn there and be ahead of it, certainly you may do so. And what we're going to do is look at the book of Psalms in a way that we all should be doing, but I'm not so sure whether we are doing it the way it's meant to be. Typically, when we read especially the book of Psalms, these are chapters, if you will, chapter 1, chapter 2, etc., all the way to 150. They contain praise. They contain laments. They are a variety of experiences expectations, fears, questions, answers. And I suppose as much as any book, maybe more than many, the Psalms touch our lives in places where we really live more than we expect from other books or more than we actually experience from other books. It's just something about those Psalms that That's exactly, that's, you know, that's where I am. That's who I am. That's how I'm feeling. That's what's happening in my life. But there is a major reason why the book of Psalms, like every other book in the Old Testament, has been placed in that volume called the Old Testament, those 39 books. Like it is a book with 39 chapters. And that is this. That God has placed the Psalms in there to be a, an announcement, an anticipation, a type, a foreshadowing of the person and work of his son, of the person and work of the Messiah, of Christ. So when we look at the Psalms and we read them, These are actual historical events. This is about somebody's life. 
This is recounting things that happen. These are real circumstances, but what is happening in these Psalms is that God is using the circumstances, the issues, what is happening in a person's life, how he's relating to it and how he's handling it. He's using all of it as a method to point to someone else. And so I hope today that we will leave this morning with a greater appreciation and understanding and appetite for psalms that we haven't had before, especially Phil Widener. I told Phil, I said, this is your sermon. Ah, the psalms. Because if any of you have been around Phil for more than two and a half minutes, you know that psalms is where he lives. But an appetite. So when we open the psalms, it's as if we're going on a treasure hunt asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us in some instances what is very obviously a revelation of Christ. And in some instances and in other instances, it's not as obvious, so we have to do a little digging and find the treasure of God's Son in those verses. So what I propose this morning is that Psalms in general, and I believe to some extent, more in some than others, in some way and to some degree, each psalm points to Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation as King of Kings. I believe that's in each of the psalms to some degree, some more than others, and in some way. And as I said, hopefully after we have gone through this, and this is going to be a very quick cursory look. When we go back to reading the Psalms, or maybe for the first time this will encourage you to read the Psalms, we'll be doing it from a different perspective than just seeing, well, what happened to Asaph or David or what was Moses doing here? But we'll see someone much greater in the Psalms. We'll have a greater appreciation and really a greater fellowshipping and communion with the God who has written these psalms for the ultimate purpose of revealing himself to us in Christ. Father, as always, Father, we ask for because we are in such desperate need of your anointing, of your presence active with us and in us and through us. As Moses said, if you don't go with us, there is no way we can leave this place, for there is no other person or being no other activity, no nothing that can any way and in any sense be like your presence. So, Father, we ask, anoint this word, anoint our hearts to receive what you are telling us. Father, touch our souls minister to us in the deep recesses of our minds. Father, encourage us, excite us that hopefully today we will learn more about the Lord Jesus than we did when we came in and thus worship him more, obey him more, serve him with greater joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we said we believe the Psalms are a revelation of Christ. Well, 
When we say that, what should be your first question? What should be your first question? Every time a man or a woman or whoever proclaims the word of God, every time that happens, whatever is being asserted, the question of the hearer should be the same as happened in Acts 17 when Paul was in that place called Berea. Remember that? And he's in that city and he's teaching. And what do those Bereans do? The Bible says they were more noble than the rest. For what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see whether what Paul was telling them and teaching them was accurate. So the first thing we want to do before we proceed into what I have set forth this morning is to say, what, what is your scriptural background? What is your, your proof for that? We should always want that. It's wonderful to take the preacher's word, but it is more wonderful to make sure that the preacher's word is being received because of the authority of the word of God, and not just because a man stands here and says something. So I'm just going to refer to two passages for our authority, even though there's several more. The first one would be in Luke 24, 33. Luke 24, 33. You remember the setting. The crucifixion has occurred. Jesus has been buried. And two of the disciples are leaving Jerusalem totally cast down because they had hoped that in this man all their desires and their needs or all the issues of their life would be met by God redemptively. We had hoped this man was the Messiah, and he's dead, so they're leaving. And as they're traveling along their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, you remember Jesus joins them, and they begin to discuss some of the things that have been happening. And after some conversation, Jesus reveals himself to them and they realize who he is. And in Luke 24, 27, the Lord says to these people, the Bible says to us, what Jesus did at that conversation is this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So how did he prove that he was the Messiah? He didn't just say, hey, look at me. Don't you recognize me? He says, recognize me through what the scriptures have said. So he travels back to Genesis and travels all the way through, in some way, all the books of the Old Testament and declares that in all of these, he is being proclaimed and prophesied. He is being foreshadowed and talked about. So you remember the result. These two realized that the Lord was alive, and so they returned to Jerusalem and when they returned to the Jerusalem, they returned to the disciples who were huddled in the corner. You remember? These brave men. And let's read the account of that, that meeting in Luke 24, 33. And these two disciples, they found the 11 and said, the Lord has risen indeed. He's alive. Now, they've heard a couple of little accounts, but they weren't sure. Then in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. In verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But you see, he didn't leave it there. Because what he does now is underpin or undergird what he has just shown them with authority of the word of God. So in verses 45 and 40, 44 and 45, Jesus tells them that his death and resurrection were all prophesied in the scriptures. And he said this in verse 44, these are my words that I, have, I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This morning we want to understand Psalms in a way 
that God has meant us to have them. And in order to do that, we must see that God has placed the foreshadowing, the prophetic word about his son who was coming into the world, this Messiah, this Savior who is to redeem us. He is in there in these Psalms. Now note that Jesus makes specific reference to the Psalms. Why? Because this means that the gospel message is contained in the Psalms and the essential message of Christ himself. Now, I know how we are. We think of the gospel. When was the gospel starting? Well, the gospel starts, I think, when Peter's on, at the day of, on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching and people get saved. That begins the gospel message. No, the gospel message begins back, as Keith said this morning, in Genesis. And then it's proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. And so when we look at the, the book of Psalms, we must see that these are books or chapters that are revealing aspects of the gospel. The gospel, which is the story, the account of God's mercy in dealing with our sin at the cross through the death of his son. So that anyone who calls upon Jesus, who understands and re, uh, has come to the revelation by the spirit that I am a sinner and that I need to be saved from the wrath of God and I don't want to die and go to hell forever I need I want to be forgiven and that person realizing that that forgiveness is only in one person Jesus Christ who went to the cross and rose from the dead I receive Christ I receive what Jesus has done for me in order to become a child of God to become forgiven that's the gospel but let's look at John eight fifty eight as the second authoritative scripture John eight fifty eight you remember Jesus is discussing about Abraham Abraham has lived a very long time before Jesus is here. 1,500 or so years ago, Abraham was alive. Jesus is a 33-year-old man speaking to the people. And so they're discussing the aspects of Abraham and your fatherhood and your, you know, whether you're Abraham's child or whatever. And Jesus says the most astounding but the most, hmm, the most heretical thing to a Jew the most astounding, but the most heretical thing to a Jew. In 858 of John, Jesus says, before Abraham was, what does that mean? Before Abraham was alive, before he was born, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now look at verse 59. What's the reaction of these Jewish people? Oh, okay wow, this guy has a big ego. What is their reaction? They pick up what? Stones. They're trying to kill him. Why? Because you see, with this identification of I am, Jesus has just announced the most startling, amazing, and most, to the Jewish people, heretical comment that he could ever have said. He was identifying himself to be the I am of the Old Testament. The I am of the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, you remember we were in Exodus for a while. We'll be going back there in a few weeks. In Exodus 3, Moses is seeing the bush. It's burning. It's not being consumed. And he says, I will turn aside and see this sight. And as he approaches the bush, from the bush a voice comes up, Moses, Moses. Take off your shoes from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And then from this bush, he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then remember, he begins, God begins to give Moses revelation about what you're going to do. And Moses says, what am I going to tell the people your name is? Because they have to understand who you are, something about your character and your ability and your purpose. And so in 314, what does God say? Tell the people that what? I am hath sent you. Now the translation of the Hebrew of that is the, te the tetragram, the four letters, Y-H-W-H. -H. 
And basically, we think it's pronounced close to the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And so it's translated, I am. But in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so when you look at your Old Testament and you see the word Lord, and it's spelt out two different ways. One way is capital L, then lowercase cap O, lowercase R, lowercase D, but all caps. And then there's just capital L-O-R-D. Where it's in that all caps, it is a translation of the name Yahweh. It means, it is rather the name of the personal name of God that God gave to Abraham, uh, to Moses on the mountain. The other is Adonai, meaning Lord or um, uh, important person or someone who is in charge, something like that. The various meanings are there. It could be a king, it could be you know, a prince of whatever. And so when we come to Psalms, in the Psalms, the word Lord, L, and then the O-R-D in caps, is 800 times in Psalms alone. In the Old Testament, it's over 6,000 times. It's the personal name of God. So what am I saying here? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus connects himself to be the I am, the Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament. And so I believe that when we look at Psalms and we see the name, the word Lord is a title, but the name which that title represents, Yahweh, Jesus has already told us, I am Yahweh. Therefore, when we look at the Psalms, I believe there is an identification to some degree that that Psalm, in some way, is about the person and work of Christ. So let's look at Psalm 23 as an example, just very quickly. Of all the Psalms, which one would be the most popular, probably? Psalm 23. So let me read it to you in the King James, which I prefer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who is this Lord? The Lord is my shepherd. Who is this Lord? You see, because when we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That sounds great. God is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think it's wonderful. But you have to remember that the name of Yahweh is not only God's personal name, but it is his identification with his people. This is the name of his presence with his people and his ministry in and among and for his people. This is his relational name. And so when I see the name, the word, the Lord is my shepherd, what can I understand that verse to be saying, Jesus is my shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd. Well, that may seem like a stretch. But you see, we see that the psalm says, Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. But this is the same thing you remember that the psalm that Ezekiel said about God in chapter 36. There are just two things in this particular psalm that identified Jesus. First, the name Yahweh. 
In fact, there's some translations now that take the word Lord out and put Yahweh in it. And I actually prefer that because it's a personal name rather than a title. Yahweh is my shepherd. Well, let's see what Ezekiel 34:15 says. Ezekiel, remember, is a prophet. And the Lord has visited him and has given him a great prophecy about the nation of Israel, explaining why the Israelite nation, why Judah has been sent into Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has come in, Jerusalem has been destroyed, the people have been deported, and now they're in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And the Lord appears to this prophet Ezekiel to give him some revelation about this. And in chapter 24, he begins to explain about this issue of the leadership failure of the Jewish leaders over the Jewish people. And this is what he said. He said, they failed, they failed. They have failed utterly and miserably. Therefore, in verse 20, uh, 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Now listen to it carefully. Because you see, the Lord is my shepherd. I myself, this is written after David has died, by the way, when that psalm was written. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them to lie down. Did you see in verse 2? of the Psalm 23, I myself will make them to lie down, declares the Lord God. This is the Lord God speaking. I will seek the lost. Where have you heard that? I will seek the lost. Remember Luke 19, 10. I have come to seek what? Those who are lost. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. Where have you seen that the Lord will judge between sheep and sheep? Remember in Matthew 25, on the last day when the great judgment, the Lord says, I'm going to judge between the sheep and the sheep, and the sheep, my sheep will be on my right hand, and those who are not my sheep and you thought they were or they were pretending or they obviously are not, they will be put on my left hand. There will be a judgment or a separation. God will do this. And God is telling us here of what he's going to do. And he says, I, the Lord, will be their God, and they and my servant David shall be prince to them. I, the Lord, Yahweh, I, Yahweh, has spoken it. So the Lord gives a great prophecy. I'm going to be the shepherd of my people. All these other shepherds have failed. I am coming, and I will shepherd my people on that great day. And so years later, a young man, a carpenter, comes forth. And in John 10, verse 11, what does this carpenter say about himself? What does John 10, 11 say? I am the good shepherd. I am, you see, I am the name of God. I am that shepherd. I am the shepherd that you see in Psalm 23. I am the shepherd who was prophesied in Ezekiel 34. You see, the coming of the person and work of Christ is all over the Old Testament. So I ask you this, does Psalm 23 tell us anything about Jesus Christ? Does it at all? So what is that to say? That is to say this, that when we read the Psalms, again, let's read them asking the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus' identity and his work in that particular psalm. Rather than just reading it for personal devotion, which is great, but let's read it for much deeper devotion with God. So that's an implicit revelation, an implicit reference, meaning it's not absolutely those words there are over here referenced. But there are many explicit references to Christ. And what do I mean by explicit references? These are references that are cited in the New Testament to refer to the person and work of Christ. So these are references that occur in the Old Testament, but specifically this morning, the Psalms. They are references in the Psalms passages in the Psalms that are then taken out of that particular Psalm and brought over here and reference something of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Those are explicit references. 
Now, there are about 89 such references in 25 Psalms that are quoted in 11 New Testament books. Now, if you have your notes with you, what I did here, and I know you're going to be astounded by this, but you see, miracles never cease. I went on the internet and was able to find this. No, I did not spend 22,000 hours putting this together. And look at the back of your notes. And why did I ask Evan to reproduce it this way? Because you see, we give you these notes, not just, okay, fine. <laughs> Caught you, didn't I? <laughs> but to take home and look at and use as references. And so now each one of us have a list of 89 such psalms which list explicit references. Something about the Messiah that is recorded in the psalm or in a particular psalm in these 25 psalms that are then cited in a particular book or books of the New Testament. And so hopefully the next time you're reading psalms, take this out and you're reading Psalm 121. I don't know if any 121 is in here specifically, is it? may not be, I don't know. Because it may be just explicit or implicit. But whatever psalm you're writing, reading, and let's see first of their explicit revelations, references. If they're not, then you will notice hopefully the implicit ones. So let's look at a couple of explicit ref references to Christ in the New Testament. You remember in Matthew 22, 41 to 46, Jesus is, again, confronting the unbelief of the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. And he says to them, what do you think about the Christ? What about the Messiah? Remember, the Jewish nation has been expecting the Messiah who was originally promised in Exodus 3.15. While Adam and Eve were still in the garden, God, before he put them out of the garden, promised a Messiah. Someone will come. The enemy is going to bruise him as to his heel, and he is going to crush the enemy as to his head. That is a promise in the beginning in Genesis 3.15. And then the promise continues and continues and is elaborated upon and added to and explained on all those years and years, and Israel's great expectation is there is coming someone who will deliver us. Now, their understanding of deliverance may not have been quite what God was talking about, but this is what they were looking for. And so when the Bible says Christ, it is the Greek Christos for the word Messiah, for the anointed one, for God's man on the scene, if you would, who would deliver the people. So what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. He's the son of David. We all know that. You see, they know that because it's in the Scripture. And so Jesus asks them another question. Listen to this other question. Well, then, if he's the son of David, then how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord or Master, saying, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. Well, that's just one of those scriptures we don't understand. And you see, in, as Jesus is proclaiming himself and as, is identifying himself to these people, he is using something of the psalm. Listen to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh says to my master, okay, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is referencing a psalm as a means of identifying himself and his ministry to these folks. In Mark 14, 20, Keith quoted it this morning, knowing it would be in the sermon. 14, 20, during the Last Supper, Jesus identifies his portrayer. Remember this? One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Remember John has says, Who's, who is it? I just need to know, who is it? Because Jesus said, remember, one of you is going to betray me. Peter says, John, ask Jesus. You got his ear. You ask him. You go to the preacher and ask him. I'm not going. And so John said, Psst, Jesus, 
And Jesus answers him, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Where did Jesus get that? He didn't just make that up. You see, he's quoting a prophecy or a foreshadowing of what would happen from Psalm 41.9. And here's what Psalm 41.9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, we understand that as a psalm of David in relation to a friend betraying him. That's the natural or the historical circumstance. But you see, the Lord gave that to David, that experience and that utterance to King David for the purpose of not only ministering to David and helping David to understand his circumstance, but to be using David, even though David wasn't aware of it, as a prophetic voice to say something about David's coming son, the Messiah. And David was totally oblivious of it. He will lift up his heel against me, this one whom I have trusted. What does Genesis 3.15 say? God talking to the serpent. And he, who? The seed of the woman. He will do what? You will what? Strike him as to his heel, but you will crush his head. And the enemy is going to attack Jesus through the disaffection through the betrayal of a close friend of Jesus. And Jesus quotes from one of the Psalms. So when we read that Psalm, we see more than just, hey, you can't trust your friends. Mm. Don't tell them anything. Make sure you know who your friends are. Nah. Jesus knew from the beginning when he called Judas, come follow me. I believe he knew that Judas was the son of perdition, as John calls him in John 17. The one whom God had put as a disciple into these with Jesus who would betray him. Jesus knew, you're going to betray me. Come walk with me. You're going to be the means by which the soldiers come and take me to the cross. He knew that, T.C. He knew that, Steve. And what did he do? He says, come walk with me. And he ministered to this man and used this man. How did he know this? Well, he's a son of God. Yes, but Jesus' knowledge of himself and of the ministry and of what was going on was not primarily because he was a son of God and he knows everything because you remember even though he retains his divinity he's not depending on his divinity hey tell me, what, tell me what's going on where is his knowledge coming from by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God See, Jesus knew the scriptures and he understood his purpose. And so he knew the scripture was in there. And he knew this would happen. And so he knew when he tells John, the one who dips with me. He knew what he was quoting. And probably John did too. Because you see, these men knew their Bible. You see, what should this be helping us in? Is there anything in your life, any circumstance that you have been through or going through or will go through, that God himself is not already there preparing ministry for you to help you, to encourage you, to protect you, to get you through it? Is there anything that catches God off guard? Is God sovereign? He is continually and comprehensively so. 
and there's not a hair that falls off our head, and I am sensitive to that because I don't have that many left. So I'm getting lightheaded, I know that. Is there even a freckle on your face, a mole on your body, a cell in, your, in you, anything at all that God is not only intimately involved with and knows about, but is in the midst of leading and controlling? Anything at all? Is anything left out? And so one of the great reasons for these prophecies is not only to tell us about what God is going to do, but to substantiate who Christ is. Remember what Jesus says? I'm telling you this before it happens. Why? So that you may know. That you may know that I am the one. You see, Allah can't do that. He's not God. Harry Krishnas can't do that. Oh, there are a couple of things. Once in a while a demon may give somebody a little thought about something in the future. Only God tells you what's going to happen. Why? How can he do that? It's not only that he knows the future. Well, he knows the future, Jack. That's why he can do it. Well, that's true, but there's something much more basic than that. Why does God know the future? Because, you see, in his great sovereignty and his control, he has decreed the future. Did I say that right? He's decreed the future. Therefore, he knows why, because he has decreed that this is what's going on. And that should, when we read these scriptures like this and see these prophecies being fulfilled, we should be saying to ourselves, look at the authority and the control and the sovereignty and the decree and the eternal purpose of God. Nothing can work against it uh, effectively and successfully. And God will have his way. Therefore, if that is true in these scriptures, and if I see it true in this Bible mind, it also is true in my life because I am in Christ, if you're a believer. So it's really important for us to see that the Old Testament and the Psalms, as we talk about this morning, contain many prophetic prophetic utterances about Christ because God is telling us that he is the one who is behind all of this redemptive work and that he has ordained it and that he will carry it out. There's nothing that happens to luck. If you use the word luck, please vomit it out of your mouth. No, really, luck is of the devil. Nothing lucky happens to any believer whatsoever. Throw vomit luck out of your uh, your mind and your vocabulary. Well, he's really excited about that word. Why? Because I don't want Satan to get the credit for what God is doing. So put, yes, clap for God, yes. So put it out of your head. Let's turn to Psalm 22. Of all the Psalms that are explicit, have explicit revelation or content about Jesus, this is probably the greatest. Psalm 22. Remember, 22 becomes, comes before 23. So you should be real close now. Shouldn't have to hunt too far. Psalm 22 is probably the clearest testimony of the agonies of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. What is the historical event? Well, it has to do with something is happening in David's life, King David's life. Perhaps something when he was running from Saul. Remember, Saul was throwing spears at him and trying to kill him and all that. And whatever is happening has created for David the most severe circumstances of suffering. And David is experiencing in his own life great agony. And it seems as if everything is falling apart. And everything is against him. He is in a pickle. And here's this great man of faith, David, expressing his true feelings. 
You know, it's okay to express your true feelings to God. Don't be afraid to do that. I've been in a couple of circumstances in my life when I've had to say, Lord, I hate this. I don't like it. And so there's something crushing coming against David. But you see, the Lord is behind and in the midst of and using this terrible circumstance in David's life to speak about a greater David who will experience circumstances and agonies and suffering far eternally far greater than David ever imagined. And so we look at Psalm 22, and it is a marvelous revelation. We're not going to go through it extensively. Psalm 22 is a marvelous revelation of two things, of the sufferings of Christ and the cross and the effect of the victory of Christ on the cross. Now, we're not going to talk about the victorious part because we don't have time for that. But the first 22 verses, I think it's 22, 21, there it is. 1 to 21 is the sufferings. And 22 to the end, 39, are the great victory. It's just two halves almost there. So let's look at this psalm together. Psalm 22, verse 1 to 2. See, David feels that he's been abandoned by God. How many of us, let's be truthful, I have felt this. How many of us have really been in a circumstance we got afraid and we're afraid God isn't going to help us? I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've sinned once too often. It's too late. We probably all have been there. If faith in Christ is anything to you, you have been there. And David's there, and he calls out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance of the words of my groaning, oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. That's how Psalm 22 begins. Listen to the agonies of another man in Matthew 27, 46. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are we reading in Psalm 22? We are reading not essentially about David's cry of dereliction. David's cry may be of fear, of agony. David's questioning of faith. Have I made a mistake? What we're seeing here is the cry of the Son of Man who in the midst of this six-hour ordeal mysteriously experiences something, and I don't know even how to say it, of the loss of the presence of his God. Have you come to a place in your life walking with the Lord Jesus that you know if my husband died and my wife died, it would be terrible. If my sweetheart died, I'm in trouble. I asked her last night, what should I wear? I wanted to put this on. She said, no, it's wintertime. You wouldn't look any good in that. I should have told her I won't look any good in anything, but it doesn't matter. I could lose the loss of my daughter, my grandchildren. I could lose the loss of my health. And in all of that, I can keep going. How many of you agree with me? I can keep going. You know why I know it? Because many of you have, and you're still here. Who has lost a very close loved one? Who has lost a very close? Y'all are still going. I can't survive the loss of the presence of God. 
I can't survive it. I've thought about this many times. I can't survive it, Gina. I can't get through this. It doesn't matter, family, what love. I'm gone. And I've had some experiences in my day where I have felt, normal, listen to my words, Mo, felt that God's presence had departed from me. Why? Because of stuff in my life where the Lord withdrew his active presence from me to cause me to realize the unmitigated hell that I could experience. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse. If you don't mind my saying so, sin for me scares the hell out of me. I'm sorry it does. It scares the hell out of me. Because God will not dwell in fellowship with continual sin. Some way Jesus has experienced the withdrawal of that fellowship. Some way. I didn't say that the Father and the Son. Some way something is going on here. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's so much more than there's affirmation and so on. I'm not going through all of that, so don't misunderstand the psalm. You just go study it for yourself if this misleads you, but hopefully you're not. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 22. David continues to explain how he feels. He says, I feel I am, a dis- I am despised by the people. I'm despised. I feel their hatred, their rejection on me. Yes, David felt this, but... Who felt it more? Listen to these words, Matthew 27, 20. Now the chief priests and the elders uh, persecuted the crowd, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to destroy Jesus. David felt despised. Jesus was more than despised as they sought to destroy him. Psalm 22, the verses 7 and 8. All David is speaking. Remember, this is David speaking. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusted in the Lord or in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Where have we read these words before? It is during the cross of Christ that these words appear. In Luke 23, 35 and 38. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, remember mocking him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God. He is the cho- his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the Christ, the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's in Psalm 22. But it means more than just what David was going through. It meant primarily what the Son of God would go through. Verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember, Jesus said in John 19, 28, I thirst. My bones are what? out of joint how did they get out of joint for hanging on the cross his joints his bones are being pulled apart that didn't make any sense physiologically to David when he said that but he said this being led by the Holy Spirit all remember scripture is what breathed out by God and God the Holy Spirit is saying Write this down. My bones are out of joint. It doesn't mean anything to David physiologically, but God was saying, the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit was saying, you are prophesying about the coming of the Messiah when you say your bones are out of joint. You're thirsty. Your tongue is cleaving to the roof of your mouth. Psalm 8, uh, verse 18 They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35 about Jesus, and he divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Psalm 22, verse 31, the last words. Look at the last of it. What does it say? What does it say? And he has what? It's achieved. It's achieved. What do you hear there? John 19, 30. It's done. It begins with the cry of dereliction. And upon this man, God pours out all his wrath due to his people for their sin. As Jesus has carried on his shoulder the great burden bearer, the great Shechem himself. And in the shoulders of this man of God, all our sin rests, and he pays the full price. And at the end of it, Tony, he says what? It's finished. It's finished. It's over. I've done it. See, Psalm 22 is telling you that the crucifixion is God's only method of dealing with the sin of his people for their salvation. So when we read Psalm 22 from now on, hopefully we'll read it differently than we did before. And just as encouragement, Psalm 22 to 31 is a recording of Christ's great victory because he willingly embraced the cross. But you can read that on your own. I skip those verses. The book of Psalms. It's probably one of the richest sources that describe the person and work of Christ. Remember, there are 150 of them. And one of the things I'm hoping to do in the School of the Word, which begins again on the 10th of January, is to give a more extensive teaching about the book of Psalms and its structure and many of these Psalms that are revelation of Christ. Messianic Psalms, the Royal Psalms, the Psalms of Suffering, you know, the various types of Psalms. You see, in the Psalms is contained the message of the gospel. This is what message you will hear as you read the Psalms in total. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, should not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him, in the Son, in the Messiah, in Christ, in God's great Son, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, the question for us this morning, for many of you, maybe many of you, some of you at least, have you understood God's message to us as he's given it to us in the Psalms? You see, in these, this book of Psalms, these 100 Psalms, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Father, is telling us that he was sending his Son to bear our sins upon the cross so that in his death on our behalf and for us we might have life through the forgiveness of God and be born into the kingdom of God as his family. You see, is this not what Christmas is all about? Remember Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And of the increase of his government there shall be no end. For the zeal of the Lord has finished it, has done it. This morning, as you've heard this word, and you have never understood that your sins needed to be saved. You knew you were bad, but it didn't matter much. And you've realized this morning, something's going on inside of you. Oh, I realize I've sinned. And I'm going to hell. I'm under the wrath of God. If you're realizing that this morning, the Holy Spirit is also telling you another thing. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be reconciled to God as Father, to be given a new home in heaven. Let's stand together. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, fear not, he is with us, so be not dismayed, for he is our God, our sustainer and strength. He'll be our defender and cause us to stand, upheld by his merciful, almighty hand. How firm. Our foundation, how sure our salvation, and we will not be shaken. Jesus, firm foundation. The soul, the soul.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that we see Christ in your word. Lord, thank you for the hope that your word gives us. Lord, would we be a church that is about your word, Lord, who knows your word. Lord, plant your word in us, we pray. God, help us to have hope as we leave here today as a result of what we've seen and heard from your word. Lord, let it be a firm foundation for us. Lord, we're going to walk out of this place and we'll either walk back into trial or we'll walk uh, walk into new trials. Lord, we need your word. Lord, we need the truth of this book. We need the truth of this person, Jesus Christ, that we see in this book. Lord, so would you would you be near to us through your word this week as we, as we encounter it together? In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Be blessed.